on the fruit of the Spirit. And in particular, we have been wrestling with this idea and recognizing that it is entirely possible to have a morally restrained life without having a supernaturally changed heart. That it is possible to live morally upright without having a heart that has been changed by the Spirit of God. Over the last several weeks, we have been examining each of the fruit of the Spirit, and we turn our attention today to patience. (coughs) Patience is one that in Scripture, there's not really one passage that addresses it, but it's mentioned in multiple different passages. And so we're going to focus on a passage this morning that calls us and instructs us how it is that we grow in patience and practice patience in our life. It comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Written by the Apostle Paul, Paul writes this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do pray for the outpouring of your Spirit to teach, to instruct, to apply your Word, to change our hearts, Lord, to understand the hope, the confidence that we have, and through it that we can rest in you. We pray all this in your Son's name. Amen. When you consider the list of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Of the fruit of the Spirit, this is probably one of the expressions of the fruit that you want to be present in your life, but you really don't want to go through the work of having it cultivated in your life. I was in gospel choir in college, and I had our gospel choir leader was leading a um, study on the fruit of the Spirit, and when he came to this one, he said, there is one fruit of the Spirit which you never want to pray for, and that is for patience. You never, ever pray for patience, because if you pray for patience, the Lord is going to stick you in more situations for you to demonstrate your patience than you can possibly imagine. Kind of a funny take on it, but there's an element of truth to it, because the way that we grow in patience, like most things in life, is we grow by exercising it. And as we grow by exercising it, it, increase, it increases, similar to the way to building muscles. How do you get stronger through weightlifting? You lift weights, you push to the point of restraint, you push to the point of limit, you push to the point where at times it's unbearable, 
and over time what happens? Your strength grows and that which was unbearable becomes bearable and sometimes even easy. So when it comes to patience, there's kind of two different realms in which patience needs to be practiced. One is patience in difficult circumstances, and another is patience in dealing with difficult people. Last week, dealing with difficult circumstances was somewhat addressed um, along the idea of peace, the fruit of the Spirit being peace that Ryan preached on last week. And so we're going to focus in particular today on how the Lord cultivates patience as we deal with difficult people. Now, of course, difficult people, there's a spectrum. There are people that just irritate you. People who irritate you because of their personality or because of their quirks or because of their opinion. And then you have people who just don't like you, that you irritate them. There's something that bothers, that there's something about you that bothers them and they just don't like you. And then you have those people who have wronged you. Sometimes it's people who have wronged you repeatedly. And then at the far end of the spectrum, you would have persecutors. Those are people who just have it in for you. They are just determined for your ill will. They are just determined to destroy you in whatever, in whatever way that they can. Well, how do you respond? Certainly the world tells us a, different, a number of different ways to respond. Sigmund Freud famously said that for difficult people, when people hurt you, your enemies, you have to forgive them. He says one must forgive one's enemies, but not before they've been hanged. He's quoting a German philosopher there. He says, yeah, you, get, you have to forgive, but not until they have been hanged. It's the idea of saying, you know what, yeah, I'll forgive you after I've killed you. After I have exacted the retribution that I think you deserve, then I will forgive you. But that's not forgiveness at all. Patience, as I've defined it here, is this. Patience is acting in love in the face of provocation. It is acting in love in the face of provocation and doing so without bitterness and without giving into or giving up to resentment. This morning, I'm going to be addressing in particular the moment of patience. That is, when things are irritating to us, when things are making us mad, when things are making us angry, there comes this moment of decision. This moment of decision of whether or not we are going to give into it or whether or not we are going to resist it. And that is, I'm going to focus on that particular moment of time, whether or not we're going to get mad or go do something else. As we dive into this, we're going to look at three different things here in this passage. First off is the determination that we must have, the determination of patience. Secondly, we're going to see how the determination of patience leads us to practice various disciplines of patience. And finally, we're going to examine the deliverance that we have been given to overcome and to live with patience. The first one, the determination of patience, is that we must determine to overcome evil with good. We must determine to overcome evil with good. Verse 21 states this, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word overcome there means to conquer. It's a military term to describe military conquests. It means to prevail against, to to vanquish one's enemies, to completely and totally overpower them. I would imagine that if MMA were present in the first century, this would be the word that would be used for uh, bringing about a submission in the octagon. 
you want to overcome them, completely overpower them. And the text says, do not overcome or do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's restated a number of different ways in this passage. Verse 17, do not repay evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Why does he tell us to repay no one evil for evil? Quite simply, it's because it's the way that the heart works. If you do evil to me, I do evil to you. Of course, we would never acknowledge that, but that is the justification that so many of us give when someone wrongs us. Why did you respond this way? Well, do you know what they did to me? We criticize it in children, and then adults do it to a greater degree. Well, if you know what they did to me, then you would know why I responded this way. We repay evil with evil. There's this thought that we kind of operate in the back of our mind that if we're provoked, watch out. In the military, it is the doctrine of overwhelming force, which is that if you are going to engage, if there's been an aggressor, if there's a point of provocation, when you engage, you engage with overwhelming force to cause the adversary to capitulate as quickly as possible. Teddy Roosevelt brought it into national policy when he was said, speak softly and carry a big stick and you will go far. What's the implication of his teaching? Well, be gentle, be nice, be gracious, be accommodating, but just ensure that everyone knows that if you're provoked, that you will completely and utterly crush them. Be nice, be gentle, but just let everyone know that if they go too far, you will demolish them. Now, this may be good military strategy. It may be good for public safety, for intervention in public safety. But it is an absolutely awful principle for our relationships. Yet, it is how many of us respond. I mean, really, come on. I'm a nice guy. I wouldn't act like that. Our wife might say, you know, you know I'm a really loving wife. But if you cross me, if you push me too far, I will demolish you. I will, I will destroy you. I will make your life miserable. And let's just make sure that our relationship is operating on this principle. I'm nice. I'm gentle. You know, if you push me too far and you experience my wrath, no, it's your fault, not mine. It's an awful principle for relationships. Why? Because it is a principle that demonstrates being overcome by evil. It's a principle that demonstrates being overcome by evil. Why? Because if you repay evil with evil, even if the threat is eliminated, evil wins. You're operating according to the rules of the game of evil. You have been overcome by evil. If someone does something to you and you respond and you say, you're such a jerk, who has won? Evil. If you have this feeling, you know what, I'm going to get even, I'm going to make them pay. Who is the overcomer? Who is the winner? Again, it is evil. If you hate a person who has harmed you, that person has won. If you give into it, if you give into evil, if you repay evil with evil, evil has won. It has prevailed against you. It has overcome you. It has conquered you. And people, when people retaliate, there's this funny things that happens. When we retaliate, when we're resentful, when we're bitter, 
it feels like we're really accomplishing something. You know, I'm not going to let this one go. I'm gonna, I mean, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mutter and sputter about this one, right? And it feels like we're accomplishing something, but at the end, in doing so, all you're doing is destroying yourself. It's like eating rat poisoning and expecting the rat to die. I'm going to just sit here and nibble on this little biscuit. I'm just going to chew on it. And why isn't the rat dying? That's what happens. And what happens is that as we nibble on the rat, on the rat poison, what happens is that we become overcome. We are overcome by evil. And so the determination of patience is to, be, is to determine that no matter the evil, no matter what has come to us, that we overcome evil with good. Is a determination to say, I will not repay. I will not engage with evil for evil. Instead, I am going to conquer. I am going to overwhelm. I am going to demonstrate the overwhelming force of love. I'm not going to repay evil with evil, but rather do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, how do you do that? This passage lays out several disciplines of patience. There's at least 12 of them here. I'm going to group a few of them together. Verse 9, what are the disciplines of patience? How do we overcome evil? By practicing these things. The first is this, is loving. It is a discipline of loving. Verse 9 says this, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The principle, let love be genuine. Love not being sentimentality. Not sentimentally, but tangibly. Love, as we saw in the week that we examined love as an expression of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, genuine love, is loving another person for their sake and not for your own. Loving someone else for their benefit, for what they get out of it, not for what you get out of it. And when we are determined to overcome evil with good, we determine to love someone for their sake. We determine to love someone irrespective of their response. That's the first discipline is loving. The second discipline is blessing. This text says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Those who persecute you. This is not just mild irritation. Paul is addressing people who have it in for you, who are set and determined on your destruction. He says, how do we respond? We're determined to overcome evil with good, determined to bless those who persecute you. That is to seek their well-being. You strive for their benefit. One way to do that tells us in verse 15 is this. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When we're provoked, we do the opposite. We rejoice with those who weep and we weep with those for those who are rejoicing. What do I mean by that? It is this, when you're dealing with a difficult person, and that person has some great thing happen in their, in, in their life, maybe they have something good happen in their life at your expense, what is our response? Our response is this, they don't deserve that. They, they don't deserve that, re, that, roar, that reward. I never got that. I've never been treated like that. And so instead of rejoicing with them, we're resentful. We, and at times... We might even cry in self-pity. And so instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, we resent those who are rejoicing. And conversely, 
weep with those who weep. We would do the opposite. When someone who's been difficult to us, been irritating us, maybe someone who has, been, who has it in for us, when that person, when they get a taste of their own medicine, what do we say? Hmm, man, it serves them right. About time. I wonder how they liked it. We don't weep with them over the, over the sorrow in their life. We rejoice over the sorrow in their life. But the scripture says, no, we need to be determined to overcome evil with good. We do that by loving them, by blessing them. Blessing one way is rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Third one is forgiving. We are determined to forgive. Verse 17 says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Don't repay them. Why do you feel the need to repay them? Because a debt has been been incurred. And to not repay them means that you're not going to avenge them out there, and you're not going to avenge them in here. Some years ago, I was talking to someone who was not a part of our church, and he had gone through a very difficult situation at work. Some of it was his fault. Some of it was not his fault. He was ended up being dismissed. And I asked him, how was he dealing with that? How was he dealing with uh, losing his job, with the rejection, with the things that were done to him? And he said, well, the way that I deal with it is what I do is in my quiet moments, I think about all the ways that I would torture him. And so, like, you know when the James Bond movies where there's, like, the guy from the other country who comes in with all of his instruments of torture to begin to inflict upon somebody? I think through in my mind all the different ones that I would use on my, on my former boss. I'm like, wow. Um, thank you for your honesty, I think. <laughs> and he says, I mean, of course, I would never do that. I mean, I would never want that to happen to him, but it just makes me feel better just, just to think about it a little bit, just to think about it a little bit in my mind. Tim Keller says what we, he characterizes that as psychological voodoo. <laughs> psychological voodoo. That we have this person in our mind and we, and we, stick, pins in their, we stick pins in their heart. We, you know, we hope to hurt them. We hope to ponder these things. We hope to jam it in there and drive it into them, and all that ends up doing is poisoning ourselves. It's just another nibble on the biscuit of rat poison that destroys us. So what does it mean to forgive? Ken Sandy, he identifies, he says, when we forgive and we are, when we are determined to forgive, there are four promises that we make when we forgive. The first promise is this, I will not dwell on this incident. It means I'm not going to replay this incident over in my mind again and again and again and again. I will not dwell on this incident. Second promise of forgiveness is to say, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I'm not going to have it, I'm not going to keep it in my arsenal so that at the right moment when I don't like something that I say, yeah, but do you remember when you did this? I won't dwell on it, I will not bring this incident up again, and I will not use it against you. The third promise, I will not talk to others about this incident, meaning I am not going to try you and execute you in the court of public opinion. I'm not going to tear down your reputation. I'm not going to tear down your character in front of other people. I will not talk to others about this incident. And number four, he said, states is this, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. 
I will not let this be an obstacle and a barrier. Now, let me just state as an aside, there is a difference between forgiveness and trust. I state that particularly in in situations of abuse, and recently some prominent Christian leaders have said some uh, things that I think are inconsistent with Scripture in this regard. But the promises of forgiveness is that I will not dwell on this. I will not bring it up again. I'm not going to talk to others about it. And I'm not going to let this instance stand between us. Why? Because you are determined to overcome evil with good. Fourth discipline of patience is striving. Loving, blessing, forgiving, and striving. Verse 16 states this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Live in harmony with one another. This phrase, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, this is not a passive statement. It is not a, oh, you know what? I did what I needed to do. It's The ball is in their court right now. I, I did my part. If they want to have a real, I am, live, I am at peace with them. It's over to them. No, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, so far as it is within your power, so far as you can go, live peaceably with all, live in harmony with one another. Sometimes people say, you know what, yeah, I've forgiven that person, I just don't like that person, so I'm going to avoid them. Warring factions that are separated is not harmony. And so the text calls us here not to avoid people, but to love them, to overcome evil with good, to overcome evil with love, to be disciplined in patience, disciplined in blessing, in loving, in forgiving, and in striving. Now imagine as having gone through these verses, you feel the weight of it. I mean, this is a tall order. It's a, it is a monumental task. How do you do this, particularly when someone has hurt you so bad? And they do so repeatedly again and again and again. That is when we must strive to overcome evil by resting in the deliverance that brings patience. And that is this. Verse 19 begins. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Okay, when is it okay to avenge yourself? Beloved, never avenge yourself. It's not okay. It's not okay to repay evil with evil. So what do you do? If I'm not to avenge myself and there has been an injustice towards me, what do I do? Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Scripture says, leave room for the wrath of God. What does that mean? It means on the one hand, you don't know everything. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what's right and fair. You don't know this person. You don't know what they deserve. You don't know what's going on. You don't know the background that they have, the home that they were raised in. You don't know the illnesses that they have that they haven't told you. And not only do you not know that, but you don't know what God's doing. Tim Keller gives the example. He says this. He says, you know, when someone says to us, when someone says to you something and they lie, When someone lies to you, our response is to say, that person is a liar. They're a liar. But when we lie, and we all lie, when we lie, we say, well, I mean, if you knew all that was going on, it's complicated. 
I mean, it really is complicated. I mean, I mean, if I had the time to explain all the different things that were going on there, I mean, that person would, would agree with me that I should lie to them about this situation. It, 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 that person would agree with me. It, it's complicated. And God looks at us and he says, no, leave room for the wrath of God. You don't know what's going on. You don't know how complicated this situation is. And not only that, but you're not the judge of the universe. You're not the one who's in control of all things. So get out of my chair. Never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. Why? Because the things that you see in this life is not all that there is. There is justice in this world. There is a sovereign God. Leave room for the wrath of God. Why? Because it is God's to avenge. Now, this idea of the wrath of God, sometimes that's a difficult concept, and we say, oh, I don't know if I I can believe in a God of wrath. But the reality is, is that you cannot have a God of love without also having a God of wrath. You have to have both. Why? Because it is not loving to be indifferent to evil. It is not loving to be indifferent to injustice in this world. When there is racism and oppression, when somebody has been raped or tortured, it is not loving to say, you know what? It's okay. Just don't worry about it. Just move on. It's not that big of a deal. That is not loving. When someone has experienced an injustice, the loving thing to do is to bring about justice. And God is the ultimate, is, is, the, is perfectly just. He is perfectly fair. He is perfectly loving. And so scripture says, leave it to the wrath of God. In many ways, it's a practice that we have in a lot of areas of our life. For example, you know, if children... You see it in, with, with children, you know, when a, a child has an injustice against having, having been perpetrated by, against them by another child, and they go and they tell a parent, the parent says, I'll take care of it. What's supposed to happen there? Is that the parent is saying, I understand, I recognize the injustice, and I will make sure that it is made right. In your workplace, if there was a situation where there was an injustice that was perpetrated in your workplace, and you have a fair and a good boss, and you go to the boss and you bring the concern to them, and the boss says, I will take care of it. How do you respond? You entrust the issue to them. You say, okay, I don't need to worry. I don't need to coerce this. I don't need to force some justice in the opinion of, the, of, the, of social opinion. I don't need to manipulate this situation to get it be the way that I want it to be because I know that my boss is fair and I know that my boss will do right. It's the same thing. Entrust to the living God. Why? Because what is necessary, what is right, what is needed, it will be done and justice will prevail. So what do you do? You entrust yourself to the living God. And then the text again clarifies our response to overcome evil with good. To the contrary, notice it says this, verse 19. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20. To the contrary, here's what you do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
What do you do? Don't avenge yourself, but to the contrary, mount loving opposition. Serve them, love them, bless them, strive to live in harmony. Feed your enemies, your enemies. Give them something to drink. And it says, surprisingly, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. What a great image. It's the image of castles. When a castle was being attacked and people were starting to scale the walls, one strategy of defense was to take burning coals and dump it over the wall on the head, that are, on the head of the people that are climbing up the wall. I'm told that it's difficult to climb when your head's on fire. Um, that it's difficult to fight when you're burning. And that's where this image comes from. So it says, what do you do? You overcome evil with good. And by so doing, you will heap burning coals on their head. How does that work? I think it gets expressed in one of two ways. It gets expressed because by acting in love, by acting with patience, by acting in love and not in the face of provocation without bitterness and resentment, by demonstrating patience and having your love be genuine, what happens is they get heaped burning coals on their head because of the guilt that they experience. That, that the goal there is to create an overwhelming sense of guilt for the way that they're acting in order to lead them to repentance. And sometimes that happens. That your goodness, not responding evil for evil, but your goodness exposes the atrocity and exposes the evil. The other thing, other implication of what this means is that if they do not come to repentance, then the image of burning coals is a sign of judgment against them. It is, exposes their injustice and that they have been treated well and loved despite it. When I was a child, um, this was one of my memory verses. It was a memory verse that I liked. <laughs> it was a memory verse that I, I clung to. And I clung to it in part because there were a number of kids in my school that were way bigger than me. And uh, that manifested itself in all kinds of uncomfortable positions that I found myself in. <laughs> and in this verse, I would remember, I had this verse memorized and say, how am I going to respond? I can respond by being overcome with evil. I can respond by giving evil back, by seeking their demise, by seeking to harm them. Or I can respond by overcoming evil with love, by seeking to love them. And two things resulted when I did so. One was, sometimes they changed. Sometimes not. But sometimes they changed. But the bigger thing that happened within myself was it freed me from bitterness and resentment. It freed me from consuming the rat poisoning. It actually gave me a heart where I was not so much concerned about getting even and even and repaying them, but it actually freed me to love people and to love difficult people. Again, how do you do that? It comes back to this truth. Is the judgment of God, is it trustworthy? Is it trustworthy? In fact, it is so trustworthy that there is only one who could handle and satisfy the judgment of God. And this is the truth that transforms. 
is that God became flesh in Jesus Christ, and Jesus did not come to repay injustice, but he came to pay the price of justice on our behalf. He did not come to bring retribution, but to bear retribution. He did not come to, de- to deliver God's wrath, but to deliver us from God's wrath. For God is wholly just. He is wholly trustworthy. He is wholly loving. Do you know what that means for us when we're faced with difficult people and difficult circumstances? It means that we are now freed by resting in the wrath of God, by resting in the grace of God purchased for us by Jesus Christ. It frees us for our love to be genuine. And it frees us to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And so may God grant us patience to love, because we have been delivered from the wrath of God by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, when we consider that you are a God of love and a God of justice. And when we consider this truth that there will be justice in this world and every wrong will be made right and every injustice will be brought to justice, our hearts are glad because we see the injustice in this world. We see the and experience and feel the injustice and the hurts and the evil that we've experienced in our own life. And we are glad, Lord, that you will bring justice, but at the same time as we are glad, it is terrifying. It is ter- your justice is terrifying. For, Lord, we stand before you, and as quickly as we point the finger at other people, we point the finger at ourselves. And we stand before you as people who deserve your wrath, and who should be objects of your wrath. But Lord, we worship Jesus Christ and praise him that he delivered us from the wrath of God, that he took your wrath upon himself so that we would be set free, so that we would experience your mercy. Lord, Scripture says that you are not slow to avenge, but rather that you desire that none would perish. Lord, can only begin to comprehend how vast, how fierce your wrath is. And Lord, that just makes me recognize in a small degree how amazing and extensive and all-consuming your mercy must be. For Lord, it is your mercy that holds your wrath in check so that people would come to repentance. Say, Lord, having experienced your mercy through the grace of Jesus Christ, Lord, may we show mercy to others. And Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ in whom we have a relationship with you, in whom the wrath of God was satisfied because of your great love for us. Lord, may we show that to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.